So in this talk, I want to begin this uh, series of explorations of what I'm calling the anatomy of ignorance. I think we know that in the Buddhist tradition, there's a sense that the roots of suffering are identified as greed, aversion or hatred, and delusion often. Very, very common language. And I think we have a, often a pretty good sense of what uh, this greed or kind of a compulsive wanting looks like. We can experience that. And we can also have a pretty clear experiential sense of what strong aversion or even hatred looks like. We can experience that. We know what that's about. It's harder to know what uh, delusion is because there's that sense that we uh, don't always know and often we don't know what we don't know. And so it seems to have a little different level than the roots of greed and aversion. What, what exactly is delusion? What exactly is ignorance? It's hard to know. I, I, I think a lot of the, the famous uh, press conference that uh, Donald Rumsfeld once had where he was responding to questions about the uh, lack of evidence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And, you know, he, he, he had a pretty good philosophical training, so he, he would respond often uh, philosophically. He would say, you know, the absence of evidence does not mean the evidence of absence. <laughs> but at this point in history, it might. <laughs> And then he also said in one conference, again, in relation to the same topic, there are known knowns. These are things that we know that we know. There are also known unknowns. That is to say, there are things that we know that we don't know, but there are also unknown unknowns. <laughs> These are things that we don't know that we don't know. <laughs> and taking taking those comments, um, you'll notice he left out one of the four logical possibilities, which was unknown knowns, which, which could be identified as, as also as a form of ignorance. I won't, I won't go into that way of framing it, but um, the, the point more is that um, it's actually hard sometimes to know what we don't know. It has a different status, really, than looking at where we know we get stuck, right? And it's quite interesting. What is ignorance? What is, uh, what is delusion? And it's both, uh, I think, um, sobering and hopeful to see delusion or ignorance as a root cause. And in seeing ignorance, often it's seen as among those three, greed, aversion, and delusion, often delusion or ignorance is seen to be more primordial than greed or compulsive aversion in the sense that greed and that kind of strong compulsive aversion always come out of 
ignorance or delusion. And sometimes seen if we had to identify one root cause, it would often be to identify ignorance. And that's, that's um, in one of the models that we've studied, the model of dependent origination, we've seen how it has that uh, status, really. That ignorance is seen as primordial. And again, this is both, I think, sobering and also hopeful. Uh, it's hopeful in the sense that we're because we're looking for, really, the root causes of um, human suffering. We're looking for a key that would let us know how to live in peace, how to resolve conflict, how to know ourselves, how to go to the depths of human experience. And when it's identified that ignorance is the root problem, Uh, There's a way that this is hopeful because the main alternative in Western culture, for example, has been to say that a root cause or the root cause of the problems of the world is evil. And when evil is the problem, then one has to continually defeat evil. And it's often thought that evil is um, fundamentally distinct from goodness. And there's this eternal battle. And I think Western culture, and I think this may be true of other cultures as well, has really been split by, is ignorance the basic problem? And that was the model coming out of uh, Greece and much of Western culture. And uh, or is evil the problem? And there's a kind of a split in Western culture. And then, you know, uh, it's like uh, the, the model of ignorance as the problem informs our science, which has this aspiration to know. And the model of evil informs our foreign policy and our, uh, much of our politics, I think. You know? And so it's, uh, it's interesting to see that. But you know, with uh, some of, you know, if you remember from maybe from uh, college work, if you, went, you, know, if you studied uh, philosophy, you might remember uh, Socrates, right at the root of uh, much of Western culture, says, know thyself, and stresses knowledge, and says the unexamined life is not worth living. And Plato, who writes up Socrates in his work, has this fundamental image of the root problem of human life is that we are in the dark. We are, as it were, in a cave where we are, look away from actually where reality is, which is outside the cave in the light. We are as if in a cave and we spend our time looking at forms, shadows, that are cast on the wall of the cave by a fire that is behind us and in front of the fire a procession of people and forms come casting shadows on the wall, we are only looking at the shadows and we think that the shadows are real. Quite an image, right? And so the, the, wor- the, the spiritual work, and Plato connected it very closely to the work of bringing about justice in the world, the, the, the spiritual work is to see that we are indeed only looking at shadows because we're actually chained in that image we're chained and we only are looking at the shadows. It's to realize we're looking at shadows 
to get rid of the chains, to turn around and to go towards the outside where we actually can come into the light and then see things as they are. And in that image, in that account, Plato also says, once we get outside, it's our duty to bring other people who are in the cave back out. Right? So it's the equivalent of the Buddhist bodhisattva image. Right? Quite interesting. You know? And so, um, so the hopeful aspect of the model of ignorance is that um, we don't have to continually fight an enemy who will forever stay an enemy, the, the, the force of evil. You know, and that actually some unity of humanity and indeed of the world is possible, which is, which is what is um, spoken about as the fruit in so many traditions of spiritual practice. And so it's also hopeful that ignorance is overcomable or workable, that we can actually identify ignorance and work through it and come to knowledge and wisdom. This is what is said, certainly in the Buddhist tradition, the, you know, it, he says that. You know, it's, this is also sobering because when you look at the extent of ignorance, it can be a lot, right? Oh my God, <laughs> there is so much delusion, right? And I have so much delusion. I have so much work to do, right? In all the different facets. And so it's, uh, I think it's both hopeful and sobering to really take ignorance uh, as as a root, as a root problem. You know, one of my favorite expressions of this sense that ignorance is a basic problem comes from Rumi. Uh, and Rumi has a poem called The Tavern, in which the human condition is likened to that of being a drunk who's wandering from tavern to tavern. <laughs> okay, so here's his sense of uh, you know, ignorance as the root problem. All day I think about it, then at night I say it. Where did I come from? What am I supposed to be doing? I have no idea. My soul is from somewhere else, I'm sure of that, and I intend to end up there. This drunkenness began in some other tavern. When I get back around to that place, I'll be completely sober. Meanwhile, I'm like a bird from another continent, sitting in the aviary. The day is coming when I fly off. But who is it now in my ear who hears my voice? Who says words with my mouth? Who looks out with my eyes? What is the soul? I cannot stop asking. If I could taste one sip of an answer, I could break out of this prison for drunks. I didn't come here of my own accord, and I can't leave that way. Whoever brought me here will have to take me home. The writer uh, Vladimir Nabokov once said, we are, we are artistically caged. It's an interesting metaphor for ignorance. We are artistically caged. And William Blake, the poet, said, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear as it is, infinite. For we have closed ourselves up till we see all things through the narrow chinks of our cavern. So again, a very uh, striking sense of um, uh, ignorance as a root problem. Again, both hopeful, I think, 
and, and sobering. In the Buddhist tradition, ignorance is um, examined through two terms, which come to be synonymous, but it's just useful just to name them briefly, that the more, you know, in the teaching on dependent origination, the term is avidya, which like in English, a means not, so it means not knowing or not knowledge. Vidya is knowledge, a vidya. And it really is the term used in the teaching on dependent origination for this primordial ignorance. And there's also a term used when we talk about greed, aversion, and delusion. The word is moha. Interesting that there are different words. And they're just used in a little bit different context. But I think the, according to the scholars I've read, the meaning is the same. It's really that of a kind of primordial spiritual not knowing, really not knowing deeply who we are, not seeing reality clearly in certain ways. And there can be certain confusion, a basic confusion or bewilderment and so forth. Um, Interesting, um, Stephen Batchelor, who sometimes teaches here, he said something very interesting, which is not actually in the text, but he said that the, he thought that the emotional counterpart of ignorance is fear. Quite, you know, this primordial fear or anxiety that, again, we can, we can touch at certain times. So there is some sense that this uh, ignorance is uh, some way that we don't see reality clearly, we don't see ourselves clearly. We're in a kind of a trance, even though obviously we see certain things enough to function. But in terms of the fundamentals, we don't see certain things. And I'll, I'll unpack a little bit later the kind of uh, the nature of ignorance in the Buddhist tradition, which is often, sometimes it's seen as not understanding the Four Noble Truths, or not understanding the roots of suffering and the roots of happiness, you know, and thinking, and as, as it were, looking for happiness in all the wrong places, right, rather than in some deep uh, peace and, and, and release. And it's seen in other ways as well, which I'll unpack. So what I, what I want to do in this uh, series is today give an overview of the nature of ignorance. And I want to actually unpack ignorance in terms of three aspects of ignorance. The first is ignorance which we can understand as more personal and particularly look at it through a more psychological lens. This is not traditional. This is really benefiting particularly from Western psychology in which a primary theme in the last uh, 100 plus years has been how we are often unconsciously driven. And there have been a lot of contributions that help us unpack ignorance. And, you know, I actively use the, uh, some of what I've learned from Western psychology and connect it with traditional Buddhist practice to help look at particularly some of the more personal and psychological dimensions of ignorance and also as to how we can free ourselves. And it's one of the main, that um, connection between contemporary psychology and 
meditative practice is one of the main, really uh, tremendous edges of growth and development right now. And so the first kind of ignorance is more personal. And I'll, I'll unpack that. And then the second kind of ignorance I'm calling more social. There are certain kinds of socially inculcated ignorance that we have. We can see it probably most obvious around the kind of trances that we sometimes have around gender, race, class, uh, age, and so forth. There's certain conditioning that can be very unconscious. Of course, we can work through that some as well. But the, so the first kind is more personal and psychological, the second social, and the third I'm calling more universal. This is particularly what's identified in the traditional teachings. So my plan is today to give an overview of those three types, somewhat briefly, and then to come back in three successive uh, talks and talk about each of them in more depth. You know, next time, because of the focus on Earth Care Week, I'm going to relate to the social and especially through the, you know, through um, ecological issues and relate to, because I think it's also clear to see that we're in a kind of, in terms of ecological issues, we're a little bit like confused children in a burning house, right? You could say that. And so those are the three areas, and I want to, uh, my, my approach will be to outline ignorance, but also to point to uh, how ignorance is transformed. As I mentioned, I'm not simply going to say, okay, okay, folks, here are the dimensions of ignorance. So in that sense, I want to connect the sobering aspect of looking at this with the hopeful aspect and say, okay, this can really be transformed. And I think actually at our time, and partly um, called forth from the challenges we have and the crises we have, I think that some, something new can come into being. A really, actually I would say, a somewhat different understanding of awakening that builds on traditional understandings, but we bring in these other uh, understandings of ignorance. And it's really, there's something really quite powerful and beautiful that I think is being birthed that has never been before. So that's energizing the hopeful dimension. (laughs) Okay, so... Good, so... By, uh, so I'll go through each of these three somewhat briefly. So by the first kind of ignorance, I'm really referring to the ways that we are in some way driven by unconscious or half-conscious Uh, beliefs or tendencies, inclinations that are possible to understand and transform. And again, this is where I think uh, Western psychology has been really, really helpful for identifying essentially ways that we get stuck. Ways that we get stuck, and particularly Western psychology has been helpful for identifying how this occurs developmentally. How if we have certain kinds of development that don't occur, as it were, in the quote-unquote right way, 
we get stuck in certain ways, or if we have certain developmental traumas or crises, and everyone has some of those. Right? Everyone has some ways that we're a little bit stuck or things uh, don't go optimally. You know? So just you know, like one example, um, it's an example I sometimes give. If I am a child and my parents divorce at eight, when I'm age four, my child mind will tend to think it's my fault. And will also have a lot of issues, most likely, about being abandoned. That person will grow up with, most likely, because of the developmental um, problems or suffering, that, problem will most li- that person will most likely grow up with tendencies to blame himself or herself and also to be very fearful of other people abandoning himself or herself. And if the person comes to Marin County, that person will have the option of spending considerable amounts of money to work on these issues (laughs) and hopefully work through them. And other parts of the world as well, of course. But, but, uh, But you could see how someone who has that life history and that we could call that, could be a really to the level of a trauma, you could see how that person would have certain tendencies to blame self and to fear um, being abandoned. So it might surface, that person might be in a relationship and the partner wants to go away for the weekend, and this may lead to a meltdown of the person because, oh my God, and, and, and the person might not even know why it's happening, right? And so you can see how there are these unconscious forces in significant part linked to personal history that can be powerfully operative in someone's life. And we could see that in terms of all sorts of scenarios. And again, uh, Western psychology um, has identified a lot of the ways that development gets stuck or goes off course or people don't get what they need for various reasons. Um, And one of the ways that I find helpful to analyze that is to look for uh, different kinds of underlying beliefs. People use different language to identify the nature of these unconscious forces, right? Some people call them their core beliefs or core limiting beliefs that are there. And they're not beliefs in the sense that I say you know, that I actually uh, know what my unconscious is, or I know, yes, you know, I know right off, yes, I have an unconscious limiting belief that, uh, that I am to blame for, for problems that arise, right? Or that, I, that, that, or that um, um, when someone wants to uh, leave me, I will be totally bereft and abandoned. You know, we don't actually consciously know these, but we can call them core beliefs in that they're actually is some, there is something the equivalent of an unconscious belief that actually through certain kinds of practices, could be meditative, psychological, and so forth, can be accessed and transformed. I mean, that's, again, 
the, the sobering part is that we all live with a lot of these. And the hopeful part is that we have tools, practices, understandings that can help us access what is unconscious, access that and actually uh, transform it and move it towards really that we can uh, remedy uh, developmental problems. Very hopeful, right? In other words, we are not, even with very severe trauma, we are not the victims of our conditioning. We are not the victims of it. We're not necessarily the victims of our conditioning or upbringing. But there's a whole level of ignorance that most of us have. And again, I'm sure that many or most of us have done quite a bit of work and identified some of those unconscious forces in your own life, right? How many think or know that you've done that kind of work, right? So, um, it's very, it's, uh, it's, again, it's part of the, the hopeful side. So, we might have, you know, the language I like to use is limiting beliefs. Other people use words, some people use words schemas or, you know, uh, traditional uh, psychoanalysts might use uh, other concepts. They could use the traditional concepts that Freud used, you know, of the superego, the id, and the, um, the ego. And the, the superego would be that uh, internal critical voice that would really often sometimes be undermining and could be very, very harsh at times. Yeah. I mean, how much of this is emotional or lack of feeling tone, do you think? Yeah, so the question is, how much of this is emotional? I think this is these, these limiting beliefs, thank you, it kind of helps me bring out a point. The limiting beliefs organize experience in all modalities. They organize our thoughts, they organize our bodies, they organize our emotions. You know, so there's actually going to be a particular manifestation of the body and the nervous system connected with this unconscious material. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be a, it's like a particular, you know, in the level of the brain will be a particular complex pattern of neural networks, right? That, and so that when, when, uh, when I hear my partner say, I'm going away for the weekend, this old neural network connected with fear and maybe trauma gets activated, right? And I go into these emotions, these thoughts, and my body is a, a bit in a, in a different state. I'm activated, right? And so forth. And again, we could see that with any number of different patterns. And this is, again, very quickly, this is what we might call the personal unconscious. Or the personal, these are dimensions of personal ignorance that are quite strong. And there can be limiting beliefs like, I am basically flawed, or I am not okay, or I, I am not okay when I express my emotions, or I am not okay when I express my needs. You know, I think there also are very much uh, positive beliefs that come from our upbringing as well, um, that we also may not even be conscious of. We can have support, we have certain supportive beliefs. We may have a, a deep-rooted sense that I am okay or at least in certain ways, <laughs> or, or that um, my, my, needs, my needs will be met, or that uh, uh, I will, you know, I can express myself and that is okay. And we may have other ones that say, I can't really express myself and be okay. I will, or we, the, the belief may be the world is dangerous, right? 
or I can't trust people. And there can be these really unconscious uh, driving forces which uh, organize our experience and represent levels of ignorance, and we can work with them. We can access them. We can uh, really uh, develop uh, alternative ways to approach experience. I think meditation does that to a significant extent. When we combine psychological and meditative resources, there are some powerful resources to uh, access and transform this level of personal ignorance. And so I'll go into more depth on that, but you get a sense of that, right? You get, I think the examples bring that out, and we could give a, a number of different uh, kinds of examples. Um, the second type of ignorance, and I want to say that all three of these are interrelated. You know, that we may have, um, you know, we may have personal aspects of ignorance which are reinforced by social, social conditioning. You know, and the social conditioning um, is quite varied. The most obvious kind of social conditioning is around, is certain conditioning that varies historically around membership in certain uh, groupings, right? Being of this or that <coughs> gender, being identified through the concept of race. And the concept of race has only existed for uh, less than 400 years. It's quite interesting. It's, it's a, it's a fairly new category. So we can have these categories of race or class or gender or age or sexual orientation or even something like level of education, nationality, religion, appearance, and so forth. Um, there can be all these, these uh, different views that we take in and that operate often on a very unconscious level. And a lot of the social movements have been to bring all of these to a level of awareness, right? A Southerner brought up in 1920 is going to have, a, you know, we would say a white Southerner in 1920 in Mississippi is going to have a deeply rooted, most of them at least, unconscious sense of white supremacy and racism, right? It's just going to be there and it's going to be the ocean that person swims in, right? And of course, there can be changes. There have been been a lot of changes since that time, but at that time that person's going to have those views. And of course there'll be some who contest that, but it's going to be very widespread. Same thing around all of these kinds of conditioning. They, you know, they can, and the thing is also that even when we start to see it, it's still, they still can rule our lives, right? You know, that, that, that sense of um, racism can be deeply there, or, or ageism, or whatever, and they're there in everyone. You know, there's, there's the, the typical conditioning is there really, uh, all, everyone internalizes the prevailing ideologies. You know, there's a story that Desmond Tutu tells, some of you may have heard this story, where he was on an airline and he noticed that there were two black pilots. And he said, really, it's great that we're really, oh, it's really great that we're getting 
you know, there's, things are moving, you know, I'm really happy. And then later, there was turbulence on the airline and he found himself thinking, and he later reported this, I hope those black pilots know what they're doing. Maybe we should have had a white pilot, right? And this is from someone who's totally dedicated to uh, justice, right? And still in his mind, right? Still in his mind that it's just that that kind of internalization operates at a very, very deep level. It's a kind of ignorance, right? It's a kind of not knowing because these categories, uh, you know, there are certain messages that are typically uh, saying that one group is better and one group is worse. Some, some version of that, you know, to, to simplify. And we, we internalize that and if we want to, if we want to uh, transform that, we have to uh, examine it, bring it to consciousness, as has happened for a lot of us. I mean, how many of us have taken some social category where we previously were conditioned and might, we might say we had a certain level of ignorance and have challenged that and changed it. How many of you can, can relate to that? Right? So, still there, you know, the conditioning is still there. And so it's even if intellectually we know better, right? Just like with, with Desmond Tutu or with, with many of us, and we can track that. And this is also, again, it's sobering to look at that and how deep this is. You know, and there, there are also any number of ways that we've internalized other social messages and they form certain kind of ignorance. One of the most obvious is around body image and what constitutes beauty, right? Which is thicker and more challenging for women, right? But very much something that gets internalized, right? And, and people still have that, even if they know better and they've looked at it, I mean, they still, people still report to me and, you know, they don't have to report to me because I can see it in myself, <laughs> right? Uh, they still report, oh, you know, even though I know better, I have this strong image that I am this or that, I am too whatever it is, you know, too quote-unquote fat or, or, or uh, I, act, I, am, I am not attractive or whatever. And again, it's typically those kind of images, are, of course, they vary across societies. That's, that's what's so interesting about it. It's so obvious that a lot of this, are social, a lot of this is social construction, right? And I, I've been, I, I was reading, I've been reading a lot on um, the history of whiteness, which is quite interesting. And the whole concept of being white has totally varied you know, uh, throughout the history of the U.S., you know, in, um, um, in most of the latter part of the 19th century, the only people who were very clearly white people were Anglo-Saxons. And Irish and Jews and others were, in many, many contexts, not seen as white. And actually, some of the books, they have cartoons from that time where they show the likeness you know, Irish were often seen to be much more like African Americans. It's quite interesting. And in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, for various reasons, um, that shifted. Right? So these, 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 it's really fascinating to see that. And, you know, and there, there are actually books written on how the Irish became white. There's a book about, of that title. There's another book that I've read called How Jews Became White Folk. 
it, it, the final consolidation of Jews being white happened around 1953. And actually, a lot of it didn't happen until the 1960s. You know, I know at uh, some of the elite universities, there were quotas on Jews as late as the early 1960s. Yeah. And similarly for other groups. So very, very interesting, very clearly social construction. And, um, and so yet we have that in us. And, and yet it's workable, right? Deep levels of ignorance. And so you can see how this is all, that, that would intersect with the personal, right? Because we would internalize personally also around all of those different categories. So as if two forms of massive ignorance isn't enough, there's a third form. <laughs> And that is what we might call the universal dimension of ignorance, which is, I think, that which is particularly identified by, by spiritual traditions. And it's talked about in a variety of ways uh, as a, a, basic, a basic spiritual ignorance. And uh, one of the ways it's talked about is in the model of the Four Noble Truths, where we have a core ignorance about the nature of suffering, and the nature of freedom. And we somehow think that compulsively grabbing on to what we want will bring us happiness, will bring us well-being, will bring us peace. And there's a kind of basic ignorance there. That, and it's really, uh, and the teaching, of course, points to ways to work with that and that the deepest happiness is in a kind of peace where we are not grasping, where, we, where there's a certain kind of... Uh, peace and ease and being with things as they are. And there, of course, the whole of the tradition, thousands of years of tradition, unpacks what that means and gives us practices and so forth. But I'll, let, me, let me be brief and talk about one particular model, which is the model of what are called the three characteristics of existence. And our basic ignorance is an ignorance of these three aspects of things. And the three are, we don't really see impermanence. We don't really see, much like I was saying just now, we don't really see the nature of suffering and the nature of freedom. And then we don't really see ourselves clearly. We don't see what is called not-self or anatta in the tradition. And so this is probably the, one of the main ways that ignorance is unpacked. And the aim of practice is to have insight into impermanence, the roots of suffering, and who we are, the nature of self and not-self. And when we talk about insight meditation, what do we have insight into? Those three. That, those are the kind of insights into uh, a deep knowing that's connected with freedom. And all of our practice goes in that direction. So briefly, with impermanence, we tend to see things as permanent and we tend to see ourselves as permanent, even though intellectually we know that we're not permanent. Sometimes I ask for raise of, raise, people raising hands, how many of you think you're impermanent? <laughs> you know, and hands are sometimes slow to go up, as you could imagine, right? And there's some way that we don't get it. And I, I can see that in my own mind, that death is a mystery. It's very mysterious. The sense of being impermanent, there's something very mysterious there. I track my dreams and I can notice, for example, 
that my father died uh, almost eight years ago, I still have dreams where my psyche doesn't quite get it. You know, it doesn't quite get it. And I have, I've had dialogues with him. Are you alive or are you dead? He's right there, right in front of me in the dream. Are you alive? Are you dead? And sometimes he's, you know, he seems to have the capacity to go back and forth. So there's something that's uh, almost like uh, the mind cannot fathom very well. You know? And so one of the deep areas of practice has always been to contemplate death, you know, to contemplate, to really look at it more. And pe- some people who work more closely with that probably have certain insights that many of us don't have. You know, and we have actually have a spirit rock program which focuses on what are called the four heavenly messengers, which are um, illness, uh, uh, old age, uh, death, and then the prospect of uh, uh, the spiritual path. Those are the, those are the four. And the, you know, this contemplation of impermanence, that's one of the ways it's done, you know, or to contemplate impermanence on a grosser level. But we also don't see impermanence because our minds are caught up by concepts which generally seem, certainly in Western languages, in many languages, point to objects seemingly being there. Our language says there's a chair. It kind of has this, almost this suggestion of permanence. And we also, because our minds are preoccupied with relating in the world, we we actually don't have the level of concentration, typically, where we can see how quickly things are changing. And one of the fruits of deep meditative practice is to be with the world and to be really tuned into impermanence. So this is possible with practice. And I'm sure many or most of us have at times really been with that flow of impermanence where it's happening very rapidly. And it's one of the fruits of uh, meditation practice. And then there's the teaching on suffering. That again, we somehow uh, don't get that um, if we grasp on to what is impermanent, it will eventually change and there won't be lasting happiness. That the only lasting happiness is in a kind of internal peace of non-grasping. That's the, you know, again, that's the teaching we could unpack that in much more depth. But that kind of compulsively grabbing hold of things as, this, as if this will make us happy, whether it's an object, a relationship, a career, that, that, that that's ultimately not going to work, not going to be satisfactory. So it's, again, looking for happiness in the wrong places. That's what the teaching is. And there's a deep ignorance about that. And again, the remedy is deep examination of human experience and watching and studying what happens when I grab hold. Is that really skillful? And we've all looked at that some and actually have, I'm sure all of us, have really looked and and there are a lot of places in our lives where we used to grab hold where we don't now in the same way. There's been, I'm sure, a lot of movement. And then the last is one of the more challenging ones. It's that we tend to organize our experience about being around being a separate independent self. And that's also taken to be rooted in a form of ignorance. And that the truth is more that we are deeply interdependent. 
that we are deeply interdependent and not separate in the ways that we think. In other words, that we aren't who we think we are, that we are actually much more these luminous, interconnected beings with activated love and compassion, which connects us deeply to others, and we don't think that we're so different as we did originally. Right? And again, the path of spiritual practice points in that way. So there we have it, three basic interwoven forms of ignorance. My sense of the mood right now is that it's a little bit more on the sobering side than the hopeful <laughs> side. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't give so much energy here to actually showing, uh, showing in some detail how we practice and transform all of this. I do believe that this is deeply workable. You know, and we have tremendous resources, in some cases, contemporary resources that we haven't had before that are really useful for, for working with some of these issues. So let me just finish with, uh, I think I'll just finish with one poem and we can talk a little bit. This is more on the hopeful side. Okay, this is uh, again from uh, uh, Sufi tradition. This is uh, Hafiz, who's you know, kind of, I don't, I think he lived at a different time than Rumi, but I kind of think of them as the, the running mates, <laughs> you know, Rumi and Hafiz, right? So this is a poem. Light will someday split you open, even if your life is now, or I'm sorry, light will someday split you open, even if your life now is a cage. For a divine seed, the crown of destiny is hidden and sown on an ancient fertile plain you hold the title to. Love will surely bust you wide open into an unfettered, blooming new galaxy, even if your mind is now a spoiled mule. <laughs> a life-giving radiance will come. The friend's gratuity will come. Oh, look again within yourself, for I know you were once the elegant host to all the marvels in creation. So thank you for your very uh, kind attention, and we can uh, take a few uh, questions or reflections if there are some. Please, yeah. When you were talking, I kept thinking that what you seem to be pointing towards is like holding some sort of deep mindfulness or cultivating that. Mm -hmm. So that you know, these tendencies tend not to overtake us if we yeah. cultivate that. Yeah. And then you're saying once that's there, that that's almost like what they call enlightenment or peace or whatever. Um, so the question is about, you know, am I suggesting some kind of deep tracking and mindfulness of all of these tendencies? And that if we... And the truth. Yeah, and, and the, the truth of things, and that if we get there, is this something like what we call enlightenment or awakening? Yeah, uh, again, haven't gone into so much depth on how we actually work and practice in all of these three areas. But, but the mindfulness is a key tool. You know, and we also have to access 
what's beneath the surface. Mindfulness only works if something is presenting itself to us. We have to be able to have also qualities of inquiry which go beneath the surface. So, yeah, one, that there, I think, a number of practices which look different in each of those three realms for accessing and then uh, being mindful and tracking and really uh, coming to really have a different sense of things. I think in all these areas, and it's, and it is a very, um, it can be challenging work. I think it's challenging to hold all of this, to, you know, and it's why we need community. So, you know, it's, I think it's uh, a lot to hold. And that, I think it points to, for me, it points to a, a little different sense of awakening that includes all three of these forms of ignorance that we awaken in all three of those areas. And they're interrelated, right? It's uh, not like they go away completely, though. It's more like you're really in tune with what it, you notice it. Yeah, well, certainly everyone that I've ever known or heard of. Yeah. You know, even you can interpret the Buddha is continually saying, has these texts where he, he sees um, Mara, who is the personification of greed, aversion, and ignorance. And Mara comes around, and the Buddha says, I see you, Mara. And at that point in the text, sometimes Mara disappears in a puff of smoke. Mara is like some people have said is the personification of the Buddhist devil. <laughs> right? But at that point, Mara disappears or sometimes says, I am seen and slinks away. Psychologically, this seems completely like me seeing one of my old bad habits right in the moment and saying, I'm not going there, right? It's no different than that. And it, it, so if that, that's an interpretation, if that interpretation makes some sense, then the Buddha, you know, had old patterns come up, but he just saw them right away. I don't know. You know he did, that, that would be an interpretation. Um, but, but yeah, it's really, uh, certainly everyone I know, like the Dalai Lama says, I, came from, I come from a part of Tibet which is well known for producing irritable people. <laughs> and he says, even after all my Dalai Lama training, I still sometimes get irritable, but compared with, with when I was younger, I notice it really, really quickly. Right? So the patterns can still happen. And that's really, for us, that's totally the mark of our practice. It's not that things totally disappear or go away. We notice them more quickly. And more quickly is relative, right? It could, you know, particularly for the harder things. Maybe more quickly means I notice it after three hours rather than three days when I go into a funk, right? I go into some pattern. And so that's really, that I think in all of these areas, that's always what the practice is. It's noticing, having access to some pattern, whether it's a personal pattern like, oh, I'm noticing my self-judging coming up, right? Or it's a social pattern. Oh, you know, I don't think my, you know, what, you know, my clothes don't look right, or whatever, <laughs> whatever it might be. Compassion for those tendencies is really important. Yeah, yeah. Or whether it's something more universal, and then I see that, and I think it's um, we see just see though we we notice them, and we have like a repertoire of tools to work with them. And we were able to do that. And I think, like the point you just made, is a good one because something there's something about um, the model of ignorance 
when we see that we have been ignorant because of our conditioning, or we see that someone else has been ignorant because of that person's conditioning, there is a strong possibility that compassion arises. We can have compassion for ignorance in the same way that we don't if we think that person is just bad or evil. That doesn't lead itself to compassion. The model of ignorance tends to lead us to see, oh, that person was so conditioned, it's very hard for that person to do otherwise, right? That can lead more to compassion. So thank you, thank you again for that point. Yeah. Maybe one more if we have any, any question or point or reflection. Please, yeah. The, I got caught way early in your talk and really intrigued by the, by the, the difference between seeing the fundamental problem of ignorance and the fundamental yeah. problem of evil. Yeah. And it seems to me that, that the ignorance underlies the evil. When you look at someone who you think of as evil, that what yeah. really underlies that is the ignorance. But I'm wondering, good versus evil is like one of the major themes of everything, of literature, of, of religion, of everything. How do we shift off of that paradigm to the ignorance? That's uh, a it's a great question. A question really of being <clears throat> fascinated by that distinction between having a model and maybe even a culture where ignorance is the root problem versus where evil is the root problem. And you can see if you take that, it goes very very deeply in our culture. Mm-hmm. You can really see that. You know, I mean even even and, and it changes. You know, even think of how prisons were originally penitentiaries or reformatories. Mm -hmm. That model is more the model of ignorance, right? Mm -hmm. Now, for the last 30, 40 years, the basic model in prison has been to punish people. The penal system system is to punish them because they're bad. Mm -hmm. Different model, and it's it's shifted internally in the US, right? You have both models working at different times, where one, one rises, one falls. And so, fascinating question to look at, you know, and I mean, it goes so far across the board, it can relate to, we have a legal system that's deeply adversarial, right? There are other models where, where the legal, you know, you know, there's a model called restorative justice, which is gaining a lot of traction in a lot of places. There the model basically is uh, a, a, a criminal offense or an offense is not so much something done by a bad people, by a bad person, but it's rather a rupture in the community that needs to be healed by addressing what happened. And it's, you can find that more in indigenous traditions. You know, I, for, I, I could tell some stories that I've witnessed being up in British Columbia where I met someone, I met a 19-year-old who had committed some burglaries in the community. And rather than send him into the Canadian criminal justice system, they uh, said, we want you to live on an island by yourself for a year and the elders are going to visit you and watch over you. Amazing changes happened. Now that person works with troubled youth, particularly through traditional culture, you know, particularly with canoes and very fascinating. And so, very deep question and um, 
you know, is what we call evil. We don't have a word like evil in Buddhist tradition. And personally, I don't like to use that word. But if we were going to use it, we might go your direction, which is to say, is actually ignorance more fundamental than evil? Yeah, I mean, again, I could, I could say a lot about this. I, I've read some of the biographies of Hitler. You can make a case through those biographies that he was a deeply traumatized kid. His father was, you know, beat him all the time. You know. There was a lot of abuse in his background. And you could make that case that his actions came out of deep, uh, you know, deep abuse and, and ignorance rather than him being somehow you know, the core of evil, right? Our movies would have to be different, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay. To be continued, it's really a powerful area, isn't it? Really fascinating. And maybe I'll invite for uh, the next week, we'll continue with this for several weeks with this theme, but my invitation would be just to explore how this manifests in your own experience. Maybe to reflect, where do you find yourselves self-conditioned in these areas? And where do, you, where do you track that ignorance that, that you're working on? You know, and maybe, you know, just go where you want to go, but it might be to really look at how much do I think that people are bad versus ignorant. Really look into that. Look into that in your own experience. And come back with uh, observations and stories, and we'll continue next week. So may, may our time together be a benefit for ourselves, for all those with whom we're in touch, and ultimately for all beings. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.